Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now if you love books as much as i do you should definitely try audible doing chores around the house is a much better prospect when I've got a good audiobook in my ears. And if you want to try Audible for a 30-day free trial now, use my promo code in the show notes and you're going to get two free audiobooks, no streaks attached. And if you don't like one of your choices, you have the option to return it and try a different book with no hard feelings and no added cost. So if you'd like to support the show and get two free audiobooks in the process, Click the link in the show notes and get sorted today. And I've always got recommendations if you're in search of a good page turner. Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. And thank you for tuning in to this episode. I've been having a rough few weeks for pain and my hands have been pretty much useless. So tonight I'll be re-releasing a reformatted and re-recorded old episode. On tonight's episode, we will be discussing the crimes of an obscure serial killer who committed robberies and murders in several states over many years, was ultimately linked to nearly a dozen murders, and was a person of interest in several more. While his crime spree did not take place entirely in Alaska, like many other serial killers, his story ends here, so I felt the need to tell it. His name was Charles Thurman Sinclair, though he would come to be known as the Coin Shop Killer. As a serial killer, he's hard to define, and certainly is an outlier in many respects. The majority of his known murders were perpetuated during robberies, and it didn't seem as though he enjoyed the act of murder. So on the surface, it would seem as though his crimes were purely pragmatic in nature, Eventually, he would be linked to at least one murder that calls that theory into question. Another unique aspect of his story is that it appears as though he didn't start committing murders until he was well into his 30s, as far as we know. Sinclair was born in 1946 in a small New Mexico town. His father left the family when he was young, and he and his three siblings were raised by a single mother. As a child, he developed a fondness for coin collecting, a passion which would lead to his downfall. And there's no evidence in his childhood of any of the traits one usually finds in a serial killer's youth. Those that knew him as a child remember him as being a completely ordinary boy. But like many serial killers, he ultimately joined the military and served in the Vietnam War as a member of the Navy. After the war, he settled down in Hobbs, New Mexico with his wife and two children. He and his wife opened up a coin shop, which they later turned into a sporting goods store. By the 1980s, he appeared to be living an ordinary life as a businessman and family man, 
with no real criminal record to speak of. Hobbs is a pretty small town with a population of right around 30,000 in 1980, and many knew Sinclair as an affable guy who could start a conversation with just about anyone. Shooting and guns were one of his favorite hobbies, and he sometimes even went shooting with some of the local law enforcement that shopped at his store. In 1985, his business burned to the ground, and he and his family disappeared in the night. In the aftermath, he was investigated for arson and embezzlement, but he and his family had relocated thousands of miles away to Deming, Washington, and they would remain on the lam for many more years. Everyone that knew Sinclair was shocked that he seemed to have abruptly started a life of crime at age 39, but in actuality, by 1985, he had been a stone-cold killer for years. The first coin shop murder that we know that he committed occurred in January 1980, when David Sutton, age 36, was found shot to death in his antique store in Everett, Washington. He had been shot in the head by a 38 caliber handgun, and $80,000 worth of coins were missing. In 1985, Thomas Rohr of Mishawaka, Indiana, was also found murdered in his coin shop. He had been robbed as well and had died at the age of 41. However, despite the many coin shop murders he would go on to commit, Sinclair would later be tied to a completely different type of crime that took place a year later in August of 1986. A retired couple named Robert and Dagmar Linton disappeared while camping. They had been together for 40 years and had a couple of grown children. They had left their home in California, heading out on a long road trip with their truck and trailer and their final destination was Vancouver, Canada for the World's Fair. However, they decided to stop at a campground in Washington State and spend a few days looking around the area. They were a very friendly couple and spent an evening around the fire with some of their fellow campers and told them of their plans to take their truck out the next day for a sightseeing day trip. And that was the last time they were ever seen. Up until that point, they had been checking in with their children every night just to keep them updated on their location. After several days without a phone call, the children were getting worried. Their last contact had been the same day that the Lintons had arrived at the campsite in Washington. Around this same time, the Lintons campground neighbors contacted the owners of the campground to explain that their neighbors had taken off for a day trip and had yet to return. Their trailer was still parked in the campsite, even though they had initially only paid for the one night. Sheriff Deputy Pete Pacini of Jefferson County was dispatched to check out the trailer and saw that they had left all of their belongings in it. It didn't look as though they had intended to leave for a long period of time. They had left behind medications and other important essentials. The sheriff began to investigate and would end up spending years trying to track down their killer. At first, he was mostly concerned that there had been some sort of accident. They had mentioned possible plans of visiting nearby Mount Baker. He put out an APB on their truck and began to monitor their credit card usage. 
He was alarmed when he saw that someone was using their card hundreds of miles away, beginning the day they had left the campground. He got a break when the person with the credit card attempted to purchase a peso worth $500 and the card was declined. He contacted the store where this had occurred, hoping that the cashier had some sort of description of the guy. And the cashier who had been involved with the attempted purchase clearly remembered the customer. He described him as a six foot four man with a Southern accent, a large gap between his front teeth and bandaging on his hand and arm. He checked the ID to make sure that it matched the credit card and saw that it was that guy's picture with the name Robert Linton and information. The cashier also reported that the man had claimed to be short on cash after the card was declined and asked if the owner could open the shop early the next day so he could stop by and purchase the coins. The store owner declined, which probably saved his life. Law enforcement guessed that he had used a similar ruse to get the other murdered shop owners alone so that he could rob and kill them without witnesses. The sheriff contacted the bank and asked them to keep the card active so that he could continue to track it. The person with the card continued to use it for a couple of weeks, buying basically day-to-day -day items like underwear and household goods, and also a clarinet. It was strange to say the least. A month later, after the couple had gone missing, their truck was found in long-term parking at SeaTac Airport. The vehicle had been scrubbed inside and out, but when it was forensically processed, they found blood on the undercarriage of the vehicle. Testing would reveal that the blood had come from three different people. Two of the blood types found matched those of Robert and Dagmar. Somehow, local media had caught wind of the fact that law enforcement was monitoring credit card statements to track the suspects. And for some unknown, godforsaken reason, they decided to go public with the information. At this point, law enforcement had been just a few days behind the suspect and was catching up with him. This moronic decision on the part of the media would prompt the perpetrator to discard the credit card and would delay the investigation for years and cost many more people their lives. A few months later in Vacaville, California, another coin shop owner named Reuben Williams was found dead of a gunshot wound in his store on November 1st. In July, 1987, yet another coin shop owner was found shot to death. 45-year-old Leo Cashett was found shot to death in his store in Spokane, Washington. In May 1990, a 29-year-old coin shop store owner named Kelly Finnegan in Murray, Utah, had gotten a new customer who came in several times to look around. He gave his name as Jim and said he was a farmer from Texas and was looking to buy a bunch of coins. He came in many times and on the last time he came in right before close. Every time he visited, he had been very charming and friendly, but on the last day, he was acting very strange and ended up going into the bathroom for several minutes. When he came out, he walked up behind Kelly and muttered something that sounded like, you stupid bastard. When Kelly turned around, the shooter shot him in the head from a few feet away. 
He then ransacked the store, stealing items for a total value of around 60000 Miraculously, Kelly had not died because the bullet had somehow not penetrated his skull and had just ricocheted off. He'd had the presence of mind to play dead and lay immobile on the floor as the shooter went throughout the store and actually stepped over Finnegan's body several times. Since he had seen the man many times and talked to him quite a bit, he was able to give an extremely good description of him to the police as a tall man with a southern accent and an extremely gregarious personality. A few months later in Billings, Montana, a 60-year-old coin shop owner named Charles Sparbo also had a repeat customer who said his name was Jim. He said he was a farmer looking to sell his farm and invest in coins. The old man noticed that the man had extremely smooth hands other than a scar on one. In short, his hands didn't look like the hands of a man who worked a farm for a living. He also noticed that the guy always parked his car way down the street. One day at the close of business, the guy showed up and shot Charles dead before robbing the place. Unfortunately, a secretary that worked there showed up while he was still there and he shot her to death as well. Charles's son had been around a few times when the charming farmer had stopped by and his dad had told him that he had a bad vibe about the guy. On the day of the murders, he had been at the store near close when the farmer showed up. He said he was looking to invest a lot of money in coins so naturally, the owner, Charles, was excited. His son didn't really think anything of it and left shortly before the customer murdered his father and the secretary. He too had been able to give a good description of the suspect and it matched the description of the man who had shot Finnegan and used the Linton's credit card. Montana police quickly sent out information on the suspect, including a description and a sketch. Police in many other states recognized the description and the crime as being similar to crimes that had occurred in their state. A coin shop owner in Washington came forward and mentioned that he'd had an odd customer who fit the suspect's description and had given his name as J.C. Weir. Many of the law enforcement officers that were investigating these crimes in their state decided to gather in Montana to compare notes. The task force was shocked when they realized the possible scope of the killer's crimes. They were also extremely disappointed to learn that while several of them had filed information on the cases with the FBI, the FBI had failed to notice a pattern or let any of the police know that similar cases had occurred elsewhere. But now the task force had a name they were on the hunt for J.C. Weir. They found that he'd had a Washington driver's license, but surrendered it to get a Wyoming one. He'd also had a silver Pontiac registered in his name in Washington and owned a residence in Deming, Washington for several years. They found a new registered address for him in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, but when they went to the area, they found out that the address didn't actually exist. Soon, however, the Pontiac was found abandoned at Jackson Hole Airport with a handgun left inside 
with coin wrappings from the Montana coin store. Police questioned personnel at every airline at the airport and found out that a J.C. Weir had bought a ticket on a plane to Anchorage, Alaska just a few days after the Montana murders. Not long after he flew to Alaska, his wife Debbie had sold several thousand dollars worth of coins to a local dealer. The police task force, in cooperation with Alaska State Troopers, had tracked Weir down to Kenny Lake, Alaska, a tiny farm town of just a few hundred people, located about 200 miles east of Anchorage. He had been trying to purchase land there. Law enforcement was able to find out where his family was living, and in August of 1990, a SWAT team surrounded the residence and were able to safely lure the killer out of this house and arrest him without incident. At the time, he was wearing a watch stolen from Kelly Finnegan. Meanwhile, in Washington, Sheriff Pacini had gotten a search warrant for a storage unit rented by J.C. Weir. Inside was an incredible amount of evidence, including items stolen from the various coin shops and items purchased with the London's credit card. Chillingly, Pacini also found a piece of evidence that would link Weir to yet another brutal crime. On November 24, 1989, in the small town of Acme, Washington, 18-year-old Amanda Stavick was visiting home for Thanksgiving break. It was her freshman year of college at Central Washington University. She was extremely athletic, and on the 24th, she left for a jog with the family dog and disappeared. The dog showed up hours later without Amanda and a frantic search was conducted for the young woman. For a few days, hundreds of people combed the area for her. Sadly, her body was found three days later on the banks of the Nooksack River, only three miles from her home. She was completely nude and it was obvious she had been sexually assaulted. She had actually last been seen only a half mile from her home by her brother, who was at a neighbor's house and looked out the window and saw her jogging towards home. Amanda was known as being an exemplary student, friendly, outgoing, and motivated. Her tiny town of a few hundred people was shocked by the murder. There were very few clues to her possible killer though a witness had seen her having a heated conversation with a large man appearing to be in his 30s. Law enforcement would later reveal that she had actually died of drowning and had also been strangled with a bed sheet. The FBI soon got involved and was pursuing a possible connection with a very similar homicide of a federal way woman named Tracy Whitney in 1988. She had also been found nude in a river. I could not find much further information on this unsolved murder, other than the fact that she was part of a list of 40 unsolved murders between 1984 and 1991 in King, Snohomish, and Pierce counties. These victims were all young women, many of whom were sex workers or living on the street. If you were a true crime nerd, he probably immediately thought of the Green River Killer. And it would be interesting to investigate a possible Green River Killer link to these crimes. 
Though Gary Ridgway admitted guilt in 48 murders, he later claimed that he may have killed upwards of 80 or 90. So it's certainly possible that some of these were his victims. However, in Amanda's case, Pacini had found a bedsheet in Weir's storage facility that perfectly matched the sheet found with Amanda Stavik's body. He also found a yearbook from the high school where Amanda had just graduated. Later, it would be discovered that she had been a classmate of the killer's son. In the house he had been living in with his family in Alaska, police found more items that had been stolen from some of the crime scenes, as well as several fake identification cards. Now that he had been arrested, there was a long line of police from various states waiting to question him. However, they quickly made a bizarre discovery. The suspect was not J.C. Weir. His name was actually Charles Sinclair. J.C. Weir was a real person, and when he was later tracked down, he would reveal that he and Sinclair had once been good friends. So, who was Sinclair? Many aspects of his past would soon be discovered. When his wife Debbie was brought in for questioning, she claimed to know nothing of his crimes. Charles told her he went on business trips and came back with expensive coins and lots of money. She never asked questions. Sheriff Pacini flew up to Alaska to question Sinclair about the Linton's disappearance, but he would not admit to anything. Pacini described him as having cold, dead eyes like a reptile, which displayed no emotion even when shown pictures of the missing couple. Sadly, the Linton's bodies have yet to be found. Sinclair would spend a couple of months in a pretrial facility. However, the day before Halloween, he was found dead in his cell. An autopsy showed that he had died due to an overdose of heart medication. Since nurses were in charge of all medication, his death would eventually be ruled an accident, and unfortunately he took his secrets with him to the grave. After his death, there were so many unanswered questions. There was evidence to conclusively link him to many of the coin store murders, but in other cases such as Amanda Stavik, the evidence was minimal. Her case is still considered unsolved. Investigators had to wonder if he had even more victims out there, and over the years he would be mentioned as a possible suspect in a number of other crimes. In November 1987, Another, much younger couple had gone missing in Washington. They were Jay Cook and Tanya Van Seilenborg, ages 20 and 17, from Victoria, Canada. They were headed to Bremerton, Washington, on an errand for Jay's father, and had come over on a ferry with his father's van. It was supposed to be just a very short trip, and when the couple hadn't returned home when they were supposed to, their families got extremely worried. They were reported missing, and Tanya's body was found on November 24th. She was bound and had been sexually assaulted and shot. Jay's body was found two days later. He had been beaten and strangled and was also bound. The van was found nearly 100 miles away in Bellingham. The van, keys, ammunition, and Tanya's ID card 
were found hidden underneath a nearby bar. Detectives believe the killer may have befriended them on the ferry and possibly killed them after asking them for a ride. Their murders were linked to Sinclair due to the similarities between their case and the Lintons. Law enforcement also considered that the couple may have been the victims of serial killer Robert Yates. However, while the time frame works, Yates's victims were all sex workers from Spokane, and most were killed in close proximity to Spokane. I noticed that just within the last few months, a suspect was actually arrested in Jay and Tanya's murders. So that was long overdue, and hopefully they will get the justice they deserve. Sinclair was also considered a possible suspect in the June 1990 murders of a married couple in Vancouver. Wayne and Diana Stothers, aged 42 and 30, were found shot to death in a building stairwell. The building had several businesses in it, including a gem and jewelry store. The couple had gone into the building with two large briefcases, which were stolen by the shooter. He was spotted by witnesses and was described very similarly to Sinclair, except for being notably shorter, but eyewitness testimony is notoriously inaccurate. Law enforcement in Vancouver would later decide that Sinclair probably wasn't their shooter, and from what I could find, the case appears to remain unsolved. At the time of their murders, they were visiting Vancouver for their anniversary, but no one could explain why they were at that building or what they may have brought there in the briefcases. After his death, his wife was left to face the music and was extradited to New Mexico to respond to embezzlement charges. She pleaded not guilty and said she knew nothing of the murders and the charges were later dropped. Neither she nor their children were ever charged with anything else in relation to the crime spree. His kids remembered their dad as a good dad. He taught them how to be self-sufficient and many of the things he had purchased using the stolen credit card would later be determined to have been purchased for his wife and kids, including the clarinet, which he had purchased for his musically inclined daughter. It appears as though the family had lived off the proceeds of the robberies for many years. When their residence in Kenny Lake was searched, it looked as though they may not have had much money left. They were living in a tiny, dingy apartment with no indoor plumbing. We will probably never know the true scope of Sinclair's crimes, but it's obvious he destroyed a lot of lives, including the lives of his wife and children. And it was all for the pursuit of money. Sadly, there are still many people out there that may never get an answer as to what happened to their loved ones. This is especially true for the children of the Lintons. The couple's bodies remain missing until this very day, and no other clue to their whereabouts has ever been found. Thanks for tuning into this episode. Sorry for the poor audio quality. In case you can't tell, I've got a bit of a cold. This is the fifth episode I've cranked out today, and I'm getting on a plane in just a few hours, so apologies that this isn't as good as I'd like it to be. But thanks for listening anyways. I will talk to you guys soon. Look forward to hearing a Halloween episode from me that is in the can, ready to go.
Talk to you later. Bye.